This episode of Let's Talk About Chef is being brought to you by the New York Times. Right now, you can get a full digital subscription for 50 cents a week. 50 cents. That's it. If you can find anything that will educate you, inspire you, or learn you something fierce about the real news and not the fake stories that Facebook likes to circulate for 50 cents a week, I would like to see it. Because quite frankly, it doesn't exist. Fake news articles are everywhere, and a lot of them are really funny, but they're funny because I am an informed individual because I read the New York Times, and therefore can tell the difference between a fake story and a real one. For example, which one of the following stories is real and which two are fake? First, there was a story this past week that AOC used her power to reopen a vegan restaurant near her home in Washington because she was held up due to a filibuster in the house and wanted to eat her standard dinner she has every Thursday evening. So she used her secret service to go make sure that the cook stayed behind to make her her vegan food. Or... SpaceX has actually built two massive rockets, not just one in Texas, that was widely reported to be the largest rocket ever constructed in human history. This second rocket was funded by NASA and not by Elon Musk companies because it will be launching several military satellites from a barge in the ocean and they want to keep the story quiet. Or Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, who called a snap federal election in Canada because he thought his response to COVID would easily win him another term, has been recorded by the Canadian Broadcasting Company, or CBC, to be saying that he regrets calling the election and he thinks he's going to lose his government. Now, which one was real and which two were fake? All three of those were fake, and if you read the New York Times, you would know that. Get smart and be informed for 50 cents a week by subscribing to the New York Times. There are very few foods that I want more at two in the morning when I wake up hungry, that I crave when I'm slightly drunk, or that can instantly take me back to being a child and eating with my sisters at the kitchen table than Kraft macaroni and cheese. And yes, I am talking about the blue box of Kraft dinner, that nuclear orange cheese powder, the elbow noodles that suspiciously get soft in three minutes, and then I spoon butter into it and stir in before your eyes it becomes a gooey opus of indulgence. This is the food of late nights and hungover mornings. This is the food that chefs and cooks go home and eat after a long shift on the line working, with some of the finest ingredients in the world all day, because it's perfect. Kraft Dinner is arguably the national food of Canada. The founder of Kraft was Canadian. Canadians eat 55% more Kraft Dinner than our neighbors to the south. And if eating KD makes me patriotic, then I am proud to be from a country of fellow Kraft Dinner eaters. This is a dish that is sewn into the framework of growing up in Canada. And yes, you better believe I sometimes put hot dogs in my mac and cheese with ketchup, because if you don't eat Kraft Dinner with ketchup, you are a monster. Sure, it's not fancy. Sure, it's not Michelin-starred food, and it's not even really a mac and cheese casserole with toasted breadcrumbs, which is also wonderful, and I have reviewed. I am talking about the dollar a box of Kraft dinner because I quite absolutely love it. I've always loved KD, and I will always love KD. And today, I'm going to tell you how Kraft dinner mac and cheese came to be. But, like with all things, we don't get to the blue box of KD and what should be on my homeland's national flag without first looking back to where mac and cheese came from. And like with all things on this show, it is a surprising story. The legend of mac and cheese is cloudy, 
And it's really not just about Kraft Dinner, but about how history is forgotten about the enslaved chef of Thomas Jefferson, James Hemings, who should be credited with not only bringing mac and cheese to North America, but also most southern food you know about today. And why am I doing all of this? Because I'm Brian Clark, and this is Let's Talk About Chef. into the story of James Hennings or the Blue Box of Kraft Dinner, we have to go back to the birthplace of pasta in Italy, where the first geniuses combined pasta with cheese in recipes that date back to the 14th and 15th centuries. These recipes were for royalty, because only royalty could afford to pay their chefs to write down recipes in what would be known as the first cookbooks. Written in Latin at the start of the 14th century of the 1300s, Libra del Coquina, and I'm sorry for that pronunciation, is one of the oldest medieval cookbooks, and it contains a recipe called de lasignes, which was sheet noodles cut into 5 centimeter squares and sprinkled with grated Parmesan cheese, or an early version of lasagna. This recipe is considered to be the very first recipe where cheese and pasta appear together in print. Meanwhile, in England, the oldest surviving cookbook in Great Britain also dates back to the 14th century, and it's called Fromme of Curry, and it contained a recipe for something called macarons, which were thin strips of pastry dough that were then boiled in water and served by layering cheese and butter between the layers. During the 14th century, this cookbook was the main source for all royal households and chefs across Europe, and they would use it as their main guide to make royal food. Now, this is where Thomas Jefferson comes in. If we fast forward 400 years to the late 1780s, while a diplomat to France for America, according to historians, Jefferson eats macaroni and cheese while on a trip to Italy. But historians for some reason like to argue whether Jefferson first ate that dish in Italy or in Paris where he lived. All we know and are told is that he fell in love with it and even drew sketches of the noodles in his notebooks. He even went as far as shipping a pasta noodle extruder back to Virginia for him to use, thus bringing macaroni and cheese to the American South. But wait. Jefferson may have eaten macaroni and cheese when he was in Europe, but it was actually James Hemings, Jefferson's enslaved chef, that should be credited with macaroni and cheese. James Hemings was not only the chef for Jefferson, but also his valet and chauffeur. And in the spring of 1783, Jefferson sent Hemings to be trained under a French chef in Annapolis, and then sent on to even more training at the Chateau de Chantilly, which was a five-star resort in France. This made Hemings the first American chef to ever be trained in France. Now, after his training, Hemings became the head chef of Jefferson's Palace in Paris, where he was in command of a huge French-speaking staff, where he would create massive, elegant dinners for visiting royalty. 
When Jefferson's time ended in Europe and Hemings had to head back to slavery in Monticello, again cooking for Jefferson, except upon returning, the menus and food that he brought with him completely changed the course of cuisine in the South, and that included when he made macaroni and cheese. Now, because Jefferson was a prominent political figure who, let's be real, never once stepped foot into a kitchen, Jefferson was such a dick that he even had dumbwaiters installed in his dining room so that the food could be sent up from the kitchens so that he and his guests never had to see the kitchen staff. But Jefferson did throw lavish parties and constantly had politicians and other rich, terrible people coming to his estate. And James Hemings could cook elaborate feasts and dinners based upon his training in Europe, but also his African heritage, and that included mac and cheese. These politicians and rich douchebags would then ask for recipes and return to their own estates and demand that their enslaved cooks and chefs prepare the meals that they had while they were at Jefferson's house, thus spreading the gospel of mac and cheese and southern food across the South. By the early 19th century, Hemings asked for his freedom and Jefferson only would grant it to him if he fully trained another slave to take his place, because Jefferson was a dick. And so, Hemings was forced to train his own brother on how to cook like he did, and that took three years. When Hemings was finally granted his freedom in 1796, he became an alcoholic, and he took his own life at the age of 36 years old. His contribution to food in America is staggering, and because history is really good at forgetting things, especially American history, he almost goes forgotten for his contributions. James Hemings is like blues music before Elvis made rock and roll. Without him, we don't get anything, and that includes mac and cheese. He is a name that needs to be mentioned more, not only in history books everywhere, but in culinary schools, in cookbooks. We need to know the name of Chef James Hemings. Born 1765, died 1801. social media. All right, here we go. Hot take. If you slap two pizzas together, that's a sandwich. The earth isn't flat or round. It's a cube. Dogs and cats are secretly dating. Will Arnett is the greatest living actor. And I'm banned from all social media. I guess the truth is just too spicy for some people. Get the freedom of Canada's most affordable unlimited data plans. Learn more at freedommobile.ca. Conditions apply. In 1893, Chicago hosted the World's Fair and it blew everyone's minds. 
The fair was the showcase for what was happening in North American society, and that society was changing fast. Across North America, cities like Chicago had sprung up to being seemingly overnight, and the fair attracted over 30 million visitors at a time when America only had a population of 62 million people. Walking around the sprawling fairgrounds, people got to see what the future was going to look like with things like refrigerators, washing machines, doorbells, canned meat, and even household fire alarms. Word of the fair, along with articles being written about how fantastic and wonderful it was, reached all the way to rural Ontario, Canada, where a young man was reading about the opportunity that Chicago held for everyone, and the amazing technology that the fair brought to the city. Ten years later, he packed everything he owned, left the farm in Canada, and made his way to Chicago, and that young man's name was J.L. Kraft. Being that Kraft was a dairy farmer, he figured that a good business would be to find a modern and more profitable way to distribute cheese. He wanted to figure out a way to preserve cheese so that it didn't spoil and could be shipped far distances. And so, with the 65 bucks that he had to his name, he knew Chicago would be the place to start his wholesale cheese business. A few years later, Kraft, along with his brothers, had a thriving wholesale door-to-door cheese business in Chicago that they had incorporated in 1909. But by 1914, Kraft invented something that would change everything. To make cheese, you only need three things, milk, rennet, and microbes, which convert the lactose into acid, which helps to deepen the flavor. Cheese has been made for thousands of years, and while Kraft was shipping wholesale cheese around the Chicago area, it was virtually impossible to send it any further because most homes still didn't have refrigerators, and the idea of refrigerated trucks was basically like having a spaceship. But it was Kraft at the beginning of World War I with the help of a double boiler and a combination of citric acid and phosphates that led to the discovery and patent of processed cheese, which not only had a longer shelf life, but could also be dried and powdered. Kraft had made American cheese. By 1930, Kraft was sold to the National Dairy Products Corporation, a company that was buying up all of the small dairy companies they could. With Kraft now as one of their companies and its patent for processed cheese, an idea popped into the head of a salesman in St. Louis during the beginning of the Great Depression. He wrapped rubber bands around packets of grated Kraft processed cheese and a small box of pasta and offered them to retailers to sell as a unit. By 1937, the company began to market them as Kraft Dinner, promising to feed a family of four for only 19 cents. The boxes not only had a good shelf life and could be kept in your pantry for up to 10 months, but feeding a family for less than a quarter at a time when money was scarce for pretty much everyone meant that Kraft Dinner was a huge hit. Homemade macaroni and cheese makes a hit. And it's simple with Kraft Macaroni and Cheese Dinner. Only a nickel a serving, too. You get tender macaroni and new, improved, Kraft grated that makes Kraft Dinner golden with rich cheddar flavor. For this tasty main dish, we've spooned into it onto frankfurters that we've split and broiled and then spread with mustard to garnish his pimento. Enjoy it often. Kraft Macaroni and Cheese Dinner. And to get any of tonight's recipes free, send a postcard with your name and address to Kraft Television Recipes, Box 1718, Chicago 77, Illinois. By 1939, two years after Kraft Dinner was launched in Canada, sales in the country had already reached $8 million annually. And only six years later, at the end of World War II, sales had nearly doubled to $14 million a year, or $121 million in today's money. 
And that was due in a large part to the government of both Canada and America war rationing food. One ration stamp could get you two boxes of Kraft Dinner, which caused sales of over 50 million boxes during the war alone. After World War II in Canada, our population was growing thanks to the baby boom and also immigration. And as the middle class moved to the suburbs and women started to work outside of the home, food manufacturers saw an opportunity to advertise how easy it was to feed a family with Kraft Dinner. By 1973, Kraft Canada was the largest single advertiser in Canadian magazines, and with General Foods, the biggest advertiser in all of television. Kraft Dinner became Canada's national food. Sure, poutine is great. Sure, maple syrup and rye whiskey are awesome, and they're really awesome together. But like it or not, Kraft Dinner is by far the most popular food in Canada. You know, feeding a whole ball team isn't too big a job when you have Kraft macaroni and cheese dinner handy. You cook the macaroni fresh in seven minutes, and Kraft grated melts good cheddar flavor all through. Costs only a nickel a serving. Okay, boys, come and get it. Kraft home-cooked dinners, the quick kind you cook up fresh. I have a problem. It's my husband. He comes home for lunch. There's an easy solution. Kraft macaroni and cheese dinner. Hearty macaroni. Rich, sharp, cheddar flavor. Ready in 15 minutes. New hope for wives who took their husbands for better or worse. But get them for lunch, too. Kraft macaroni and cheese dinner. The kind you cook up fresh and quick. The history of food is complicated. We as humans didn't really start to write down recipes or stories of where our food came from until only a few hundred years ago. And yet, as I've said before on this show, the story of food, of how we eat, what we eat, and who made the food that we eat, is what makes us human. History also is written by the victors, and by those civilizations that unfortunately have deeply flawed pasts. I know it's just mac and cheese, and I know that in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter. But Thomas Jefferson didn't bring it to North America. He didn't invent it, and he didn't master how to make it in the American South. James Hemings did. Just like rock and roll ignored the fact that it came from black musicians in the South, Southern food, and especially mac and cheese, comes from black chefs who were making it for their white masters. I don't really get to eat mac and cheese that much anymore. Mostly because I'm turning 35 in a few weeks and don't have a desire to die or eat vast amounts of processed foods. But every now and then I'll crack open that blue box of Kraft Dinner and eat something that even though it has a flawed past, is delicious. It's the national food of Canada and it reminds me of my childhood. I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. It was written and hosted by me, Brian Clark. If you want to write into the show, you can send everything to let's talk about chef at gmail.com, or you can follow me on Instagram at Chef Brian Clark. I want to thank my sponsors and most importantly, you for listening. If you have five seconds and want to leave the show a five-star rating and a review, we would be eternally grateful. Or if you think you know someone that would like the show, you can tell them that all episodes can be found wherever you listen to podcasts. On another note, I am going on the road. In September, 
I and my absolute better half, Sarah, are traveling to London, England, and Paris, France. So if you are from there and want to grab a drink or have any tips on where to eat, please write into the show and let me know. That's it from me. And so, as always, I'm Brian Clark. Have a great service and have a great week. J'aimerais ça t'écrire des poèmes avec des beaux mots qu'on comprend pas, ni un ni l'autre. J'aimerais ça qu'on se fasse une soirée avec des petites fleurs puis des chandelles, mais je trouve ça quitten pour mourir, puis toi aussi. Au pire, on rira ensemble, on mangera du craft dinner. Tout ce qu'on a besoin Au pire, on rira ensemble On mangera du craft dinner C'est tout ce qu'on a besoin J'aimerais ça danser un slow avec toi Mais on est tous les deux trop maladroits J'aurais pu te marcher dessus puis te casser un orteil. J'aimerais ça qu'on se regarde dans les yeux puis qu'on se dise des belles affaires. Ça sortira peut-être tout à l'envers, mais au moins nous autant se comprendre. Au pire, on rira ensemble, on mangera du craft dinner. C'est tout ce qu'on a de besoin. Craft dinner, c'est tout ce qu'on a.